Hey, it's Dan Harmon from Harmontown. I want to tell you about an exciting new podcast coming to Feral Audio called Launch Left. Rain, Phoenix, and Moon Zappa are going to interview extraordinary minds, mavericks, and pioneers in their fields. This season, Launch Left is going to celebrate nonconformists like Michael Stipe, Shepard Ferry, Spike Jones, Mario Batali, and many others. And those guests are also going to spotlight their favorite left-of-center emerging artists. So listen and subscribe now at feralaudio.com slash left, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can do it however you want, man. That's the nonconformist part. Guys, finding quality denim jeans is tough. And to find a good pair without breaking the bank is just uh, almost impossible. But at Distilled, spelled D-S-T-L-D, you get like brand top quality jeans at a price that won't break your bank. And I know I said break the bank, but I like saying break the bank. And I'll say it again. Break the bank. But just go to distilled.com, D-S-T-L-D. LD.com right now and use a promo code FERAL and check out and get a 20% discount on your first pair. And these are great jeans. I love them. I wear them all the time. Heck, I sleep in them. Distilled jeans. They're the best jean you're ever going to wear. In fact, I shower in them. Distilled jeans. D-S-T-L-D. They're good quality, super duper denim. And, you know, it's not going to cost you like $200 or $100. Go to distilled.com, D-S-T-L-D.com. Do it. Get some jeans. Look cool. Feral Audio. Hello and welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. If you haven't listened to this show before, it is uh, exactly what the title says. It's a conversation with me and a very interesting person in the world. In the past, I've uh, I've spoken with uh, legendary uh, musicians like Wayne Kramer, uh, writers uh, like uh, Paul Krasner, and activists, and Black Panthers, so... uh, And... uh, if uh, and today this is right up there with uh, great legends. This is Michael McCusker, who is a legendary anti-war activist. Um, his story is incredible. It's uh, about him in Vietnam and how he became an uh, anti-war. Uh, he's also a writer. He has a great, great show on KMUN, which is a Astoria, Oregon radio station. Now you can check out his archives on their website, and you can. Uh, listen to his past episodes, uh, which, of course, this, if I didn't say this, this is the continuation of our Astoria road trip that I did with Kelly Rose, where we did photos and videos to go along with each episode. You can go to themattdwyer.com, and you can check out the uh, all the uh, photos and videos that we did for these episodes. Uh, and Mr. McCusker is quite a uh, iconic figure in Astoria and kind of... Uh, you know, he's hard to get in touch with. He has no phone, he has no internet, so we had to hunt him down at the radio station, and thankfully he agreed to do the show, uh, and he had us meet him at Godfather's Bookstore in downtown Astoria, and uh, where we interviewed uh, him. And at uh, and uh, Shane Bugby, by the way, I need to say Shane Bugby, uh, who invited us up to Astoria to do these shows and hooked up all this stuff, um, is a part of this interview. Sometimes you can't hear him uh, so well, uh, because, you know, we have limited mic access, but uh, he really had some great questions and really helped take the 
episode into some great areas like a story about Phil Oaks. Um, I was a little nervous about doing the episode in a bookstore because it opens up to excessive sound and uh, people chiming in, and they did. Uh, there's one guy who chimes in who's awesome and really jovial. Uh, there was another guy who came by and asked some questions, and uh, he at first it was really cool, and then it became overbearing, so I had to cut him out. <laughs> it, he became a little crazy fan, and it was like he was he would not uh, give up his power of or whatever. He, but uh, so thankfully Shane kindly shooed him away. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's an incredible episode. Also, at the end of this episode, there's a little chunk. Uh, we went out for drinks afterwards, and we kept our recorders going. And Mr. McCusker tells a great story about uh, a, uh, a bunch of gentlemen um, protesting at the Pentagon during the Vietnam War and, and having something to do with chicken shit. So uh, that is at the very end of this episode. That's a great story. And then I'm going to take that footage because there was a half hour of audio. I'm going to put it to photos and uh, put that on the website so you can see that. TheMattDwyer.com. Check out that uh, all the episodes there and photos of, from this road trip. It's really great. Uh, also, do me a favor. Go to the feralaudio.com, the Matt Conversations with Matt Dwyer page. Click onto the Amazon link. Put that in your toolbar. Anytime you buy diapers, books, movies, cleaning supplies, uh, that money gets a, a kickback of that comes to the show, Feral Audio and my show, and that really helps us out a lot, helps support buy mics, new recorders, etc. Uh, thank you very much. Let's get to this Michael McCusker interview. It's incredible. It's really one of my favorites. He's a riveting, fascinating guy. Here we go. Listen to it now. I feel like our culture has begun to embrace war again and I feel like some of the younger people I know uh, really glorify it and think of course they don't participate it and I think I, I, do you find that in our society that well, I, don't, I, I don't think it has ever lost we've ever lost that glorification for war I mean there's been certain segments that have uh, sometimes the anti-war voice is a little louder than the pro-war voice but when it comes down to uh, waving the flag and going to shoot somebody we seem to be very eager to do that and always have uh, there is now a division in the society uh, that makes it even more possible for people who young people who think we ought to be at war to not have to pay the cost of it because the draft has ended so they can let somebody else go and uh, make you know get the crap knocked out of them or do the killing themselves and then do it they can live through it vicariously uh, I didn't like the draft, but after the draft ended, I began to realize that maybe it's m much more important to have the draft than it's not, because it does involve everybody, more or less. Without, you know, we'd have to reform it so that all all the people that were uh, exempt are not exempt. Now, so they all have to go, <laughs> yeah. and then maybe they'll have second thoughts about it. But now that only a very few, who usually are more of the uh, poorer segments of society, uh, generally have to go and do the killing and dying. So many people can live through it vicariously and support it and this and that without having, I was just talking to a fellow named Matt Love. He's a pretty good writer. He's around here. He wrote a damn good um, piece for the Oregonian a few months back about uh, these, this guy that carries a gun on the beach all the time. He's, he's armed every, you know, he's got three guns on him all the time. 25 years old and 
He said, I'm def to defend myself. And I don't know what all these people need all this defense for. <laughs> and he's actually right now, according to Matt telling me this morning, he's trying to now get people to walk in armed into farmers markets all over the all over the coast here. And, uh, you know, so I think, well, maybe we should have a war for those bastards. They can all just go someplace and kill each other. <laughs> you know, they want to be gunzels and carry these guns and protect themselves. Why not kill each other? Go someplace, you know, and do it instead of walking around scaring everybody else. What is it with this? What do you think that mentality is that people are like, well, I got to defend myself. It's like, what against what are you defending? Inherent, you? Co inherent cowardice. <laughs> <laughs> That's, so you, do you think these guys are just living in fear and being cowards? When they posture it as, I'm a man. That's exactly what they're doing. They're posturing. And they got, you know, they got, the, they got the, the loaded gun. Now, I was not a very good fighter. I hated fighting when I was a kid. But I used to have to, I used to even, uh, when I was growing up in El Monte, which it was uh, all knives. It was uh, switchblades. Every time I hear the sink, I just, you know. <laughs> but I never carried one. And uh, I was not, I hated fighting and I wasn't very good. But there were times when I really had to defend myself with these, these damn little knuckles there. Thank God they're kind of, they can really leave a trail on somebody's face, but, and then I would just go for the, go for the hills as quickly as I could. If I left-handed, I got in the first blow before anybody knew where I was coming from and gave me a block head start usually. So that's <laughs> generally how I defended myself when I was younger. Did you, did you get drafted into Vietnam or did No, I was Marine Corps. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. I, I enlisted in the Marine Corps, actually reserves, and then when Vietnam happened, I re-enlisted to go to Vietnam because at the time I thought it was the war of my generation and uh, I should go. And at least gives me creds about talking about it now. I came back alive and we started Vietnam Vets Against the War. And uh, so whenever I'm called a coward and a traitor, I, which is quite often, I usually can put a person on the spot asking them what the hell they did, and they usually didn't do anything. They just are loudmouths. Well, I'm a loudmouth too, but I got the creds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I think a lot of the the young men I know who are very pro-war, and I have a couple friends specifically who are always just like, "Yeah, we should go into here, and we should do this, and we got to flex our muscle." And I'm like, "Maybe I'm they should go to a VA hospital with the guys coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, and talk to them." Yeah, they if those that are getting served, you know, I mean, right now the VA, like it always has, is falling down on the on, on doing what it's supposed to do. Yeah, they seem it's like more like rooting for a sports team than it is. And I'm like, there's a disconnect of what the reality is. War has often uh, been treated as a sport and sports has often been treated as a war. Uh, you know, I I'm not a sports fan. And when somebody uh, questions why I'm not, I just generally say, you know, after a war, you know, football's, you know, pansy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, with the way media has, like, I mean, the Vietnam War was presented pretty brutally in the media. Now, our, you know, it's everything They sanitize is, it a lot now. Yeah. The Vietnam was actually the first televised war, so they didn't, they didn't have too many restrictions or strictures on it because they didn't know what the hell to do about it, even though they did have the five o'clock follies out of Saigon and... Uh, crap like that but these guys are you know and women are going out with the troops and so they're filming and sending their stuff straight to the uh, you know CBS or NBC which had their own censors and sometimes the military uh, managed to get in and do that too but now they've got it all taken care of they got all these you know they have what do they call them now they got all the reporters uh, they're stuck with the unit uh, so they don't want to 
you know, the unit can, you know, knock them in the head. Pardon me? Richard? Abetted. Embedded. But there's another term, too. They have the, the group of reporters all stuck together. They don't go anyplace without official permission, blah, 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 blah. So they don't see anything, literally, that they're not supposed to see. And that's another term, but I can't think of it at the moment. That started with the first Gulf War, really started with that. You know, they just stuck them all together on this little reservation and say, you don't go anywhere without our permission. We will embed you, but we're not going to let you go see anything unless we want you to see it. And even in the Marine Corps, because I was what they call a combat correspondent, because I'd been a newspaper man. And I was mostly with infantry and, and reconnaissance, because I'd also been recon. But when they get some uh, civilian out there, we were supposed to uh, more or less shotgun them, which is in a way what we did, you know, guard, you know, be the security. But at the same time, theoretically, uh, turning them aside from what we don't want them to see, like burning villages and crap. But most of us took our job uh, a little more seriously than that. We just said, go shoot these damn things. Maybe we'll stop the war, you know. And, of course, people would try to threaten us, uh, officers and stuff like that. We would usually say what I still say when somebody tries to threaten me with anything, what are you going to do, send me to Vietnam? <laughs> you know, <laughs> what the hell else worse can you do to me? I'm here now. You can't do anything worse to me. And more or less that was it. Throw me in the brig? Sure, throw me in the brig. I'm not going to get shot. Yeah, throw me in the brig. Yeah. <laughs> And you volunteered to go to Vietnam. Uh, when you first landed or got there, I mean, how quick was it when you realized? I, I was in within three days. Uh, actually, we did land. We uh, uh, landed on an LCI out of uh, Chulai. Uh, they tried to make it look like World War II in a way. Then we had to unload uh, LSTs for about three days. And then uh, I was assigned first Mardiv in Chulai. And a day after that, we had uh, uh, an op. Uh, a, a, a bunch of Marines uh, blundered into an ambush. And so I was off to Quang uh, Nai, a city called Quang Nai, where we held a lot of our operations, which was actually just north of My Lai. I went through My Lai at least once before Cali did, about a year before he did, a year and a half before he did. It was a big, big village complex. I didn't go through Me Life 4, but I went. we burned down a couple of them. <laughs> but there was all kinds of uh, different ha hamlets. Um, and they would be, we would designate them by numbers. The Vietnamese had a different designation, but we'd call them by number. So Me Life 4 was uh, the one that made, made infamy with Cali and the Americal. And by then, the Marines had been tossed out of uh, Chulai. We went further north. When you went into Vietnam, you went because you wanted to fight for our country. I guess. You know, I'm not... I just uh, thought it was something I ought to do. I also had a, uh, a secondary reason, which was to uh, see what was going on and then go back as a civilian reporter and... Uh, uh, you know, blow it out of the water, I guess. It's like, uh, uh, seems like almost everybody that's ever been a grunt in any goddamn war uh, wants to, you know, just uh, show the world what the Army's really like or the Marine Corps is really like, you know, like Willie and Joe, if you've ever seen any of those cartoons. I've met Bill Malden a, a bunch. Bill Malden and Willie and Joe, yeah. And uh, uh, so in a sense, I thought if I can survive a tour there, I will go back as a civilian and because I knew I was going to be restricted, you know, uh, as, a, as a 
and I didn't even go in as a Marine Corps com combat correspondent. I, was, I thought I was going to get stuck in recon, or at least the grunts. But I found out because they said, oh, you got uh, this one corporal said, hey, you got, you got newspaper stuff. Why don't you go over there? They need guys like you. And I was a corporal, too, because of my six years in reserves. Plus, I'd been a jumper. And so I got it right away. So I just uh, I had a real uh, slack job in many, many respects. I was out with the infantry and recon, but I didn't have anybody telling me what to do. I was an independent, you know, and they'd say what I should do or what I shouldn't do. I'd say, go take it up with the general. He's my boss. You know, and most of those bastards didn't even want to talk to a general. And, uh, of course, part of the general probably wouldn't have liked what I used him for. But uh, I was just a free agent. And a lot of people in the military don't like free agents. You got to be, you have to be subordinate to somebody and responsible for somebody and do what the hell we tell you. But I was able to skate out of that, you know. And, uh, I, and I'd already done all my, you know, my, my young time. I was a corporal and a sergeant in Vietnam and had already been busted. So, you know, it's like... Uh, yeah, sure, you can tell me what to do. I'm not going to do it. You know, what are you going to do? Send me to Vietnam. That's, you know, that was it. You know, I, I, I had that attitude. I still do. And, uh, but, you know, some of these guys, most of these guys I was with, they were just out of, out of ITR, which is six months, you know, and they're in Vietnam, and they're still like this, being told what to do, you know, and, and uh, although they learned, they learned. You know, you, you know I, I've, I've probably in many respects never seen more individual people in my life than those that are suborned into a military outfit in a war. You know, it's like uh, they got to get that, that, that attitude, man, that raggedy-ass attitude. And they got it real quick, and they, their individualities came, came through. And uh, people say, oh, they were just militants, weren't they, and all that? And I said, they were some of the most individual people I've ever known in my life. It took a while. You know, they, the Marine Corps will break you down to build you up their way, but in the course of building, you get yourself back. And especially when you're going through, you know, really – really heavy stuff you really get yourself back and you make a compromise with yourself and a pact with yourself okay i'm going to do this but i'm going to be who i am too and i think sometimes it de demonstrates a personality even more at that extreme that's been my experience anyhow what year was it that you went into 66 67 i was in vietnam so you already knew that it wasn't like a fresh war you knew what you were getting into yeah and we well no one ever really knows what they're getting into until they get shot at the first time. <laughs> what is that? What is that f like the first time that happens? Oh, uh, controlling bowel movements and uh, <laughs> urinating all over yourself, damn near. Uh, I remember one of the funniest things to me, being scared all the time. I felt I had to piss all the time, but couldn't. <laughs> but you felt that, you know. You felt that. Oh my God! <laughs> and is there that sort of that um, that that voice in your head of? You know, like John Wayne in these movies, and he's like, oh, we're all men, and we're going to... You know, it's like, you, you feel like you have to be that image, but then when you're in that real situation... You know it's only an image. Uh, we were, you know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a paradox, uh, and not just a simple paradox. It's multiple paradoxes, I guess. You have things, you know, you wind up trying to take care of each other, because, you know, if you don't take care of your pals, even if you hate them, they're not going to take care of you, you know. So you take care of yourselves. And what you want to do is you all of you get out of it the best you can, you know, alive. And if anybody gets hurt, you know, you get them out of there as fast as you can, get them taken care of, you know. We had helicopters. That was pretty quick. So it's all kinds of multiple paradoxes in many respects going on instantaneously. And... Uh, you know, you take more risks for each other than you would, into, you know, for yourself. 
And I found, even with my camera, because I was a reporter photographer, I took more risks with my bloody camera to get a damn shot than I did shooting with my rifle, because I wanted that shot, you know. And but with my rifle, hey, I'm just going to keep my nose down. But with that camera, I'm going to take a shot, you know. <laughs> so that's another funny thing. Photographers, that's why we had so many photographers get hurt. <laughs> wow. Going to get that shot, you know, like you. <laughs> In the war zone of the bookstore. <laughs> it has been more than once, yeah. When I was working here before, a few years back, we had more. We had to call the cops more times than bars did. Arguments? <laughs> 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 well, we just had people hanging out here that uh, had to kind of thin them out, let's say. <laughs> Do you feel like it's difficult in these current times to have the that the anti-war voice is quieter and that it's more difficult sort of to fight it? Oh, I don't know. I'm not getting beat up anymore or thrown in jail like I used to. Uh, in a way, the attitude is more, okay, sure, you can say what you want to say, but we're not going to listen to you. Whereas before, you have no right to say it, and I'm going to club you down. Uh, but in a way, at least they're responding to you when they club you down rather than just dissing you off. Mm -hmm. you know. And we get yeah. dissed off a hell of a lot these days. Yeah. So I don't know. Uh, human nature doesn't really change that much. Uh, look what we've done to this planet, and we still are closing our eyes to it. Uh, so, we'll see. You know, I'd, I'd like to live another 500 years to see if we do. You know, I'd like to see the end of the story. And I don't give us 500 years, but uh, I won't. You know, I just came in at one time, and I go out another, so I won't know the end. There will be an end, uh, however long it is from now. But we're not helping in things any. No, sir. Well, I think humankind, as much as we might be the most rapacious uh, uh, species on the planet, and maybe we aren't, except we're intelligent. That's what's probably what's killing the planet is our intelligence, and our you know it's our intelligence that made us the most warlike people in the world. That's that's how we managed to you know become the top bosses of this planet. Uh, but we still haven't learned much. We're starting to learn now, and maybe maybe a little bit too late. Maybe it's in the dire times that we learn something. I don't know. Uh, there's an awful lot of people I speak to who are very concerned, uh, whereas a few years back, nobody was even talking about it. And so often, even in our own personal lives, is when you're ready to step off the cliff is when you really get wise to shit, and maybe you better not take that step. Individually, maybe species-like. I don't know. Well, I know that none of us will really see the end because we see the end. Because when, when, if, if, we, if there was some cataclysmic thing that happened, we how would we know we're dead? We wouldn't know if it's the end for everyone. The end oh yeah, for us is the end. That's all I'm saying. So uh, Saint Exbury, I don't know, I, I pronounce his name always wrong. The guy that wrote The Little Prince, but he also wrote some of the greatest books about uh, early air, you know, piloting that I've ever read. He was just a great, great writer. He disappeared over France in 1944 on recon flights. And he was a big, big man. He hardly ever fit into his cockpits. But he wrote uh, in one of his books, I think it was Wind, Sand, and Stars in the 20s, he said that any person that dies, the whole world goes with that person. And it does. Right. Yeah. Right. I've never forgotten that line. Wow. Yeah.
Yeah, I think I did. <laughs> my favorite, my favorite uh, bumper sticker I saw once uh, was uh, "Save the planet, kill yourself." <laughs> yeah, search euthanasia. Yeah, search euthanasia. Yeah, search yeah. euthanasia. Yeah. Sodomy. Yeah. Yeah, we had uh, bed bugs uh, like earlier this year, and I was like, humanity sometimes is the bed bugs of the world because we just yeah. we're just pestering and biting and ruining everything. We're cooties, yeah. <laughs> cooties and scabies. Um, we think too highly of ourselves, and we really just tree food. Well, as I was reading just something just the other day, the the more the hotter it gets, the more the little microorganisms are gonna you know be plentiful and inhabit <laughs> so who knows uh when you returned f when you came back to the states from vietnam and because you said you wanted to b blow this up what, what, what was what did you you started an underground paper and what were some well I yeah i worked a few of them uh, well i got thrown out of japan actually because i was uh i wrote an article which i if i'd known i'd see you guys i probably would have brought it because i just resurrected it and read it on the air a couple of weeks ago just just for uh but it was uh I was, oh yeah, Juneteenth. Uh, you know, Juneteenth was uh, two Thursdays ago, so I read an article I wrote about Juneteenth, and then I thought, I'm going to throw this damn thing. I wrote it. I think it was the most important story I ever wrote, and it was while I was in the Marine Corps. And it was uh, whites and blacks on the base in Iwakuni were uh, inevitably thought that they were going to be in a riot, because that was 67, and, you know, they were rioting everywhere Detroit, blah, blah, blah. And I, I had gone through Watts in 65, and it seems like half the blacks I knew in Vietnam had been given a choice to go to jail or join the Marine Corps to go to Vietnam. You know, so when we, a lot of us extended out of Vietnam, because that's what I did, I extended a year, or six months uh, after my year, and a lot of guys did that because they didn't want to, black guys especially didn't want to go home right now. And others uh, said, look, just don't let, don't, don't send us home until this is over with. I don't want to go home and get killed. You know, and so I went to all these black bars. I was, uh, unfortunately, I was allowed to. I was allowed in without. You know, I've always figured it's good odds. Uh, coming back to the states, same way, uh, trying to get Vietnam vets against the war guys. You know, I can go onto a base with my card. If half wanted to throw me out and the other half wanted to hear what I had to say, that's that's good. And that's I learned that in Japan with in the black bars. You know, get this whole out of here. And I say, look, let's listen to what he has to say. And there was a lot of the guys I was in Vietnam with that said, let let's hear what he has to say. So I wrote this article about, you know, you guys are going to try to kill each other on a third-person soil, which you have no right to do, and uh, you're, not, you're, you're thinking it's inevitable, so it's the inevitability of the inevitable, and you're being stupid. You know, you shouldn't be doing those things. Well, the colonel saw my article, uh, said that, I sh that he would, did not want that published, and uh, so I went to the printer, and uh, he, he actually uh, risked his contract to print it. So I got thrown out of Japan for that one. He later said I cost him his star. And he had a prejudice, a deep prejudice against Japanese. He'd been a fighter pilot against them. And so here he is, a base commander in Japan, you know. So uh, so that was probably the, the maybe the most important thing I ever wrote. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you feel like a lot of the 60s is misunderstood? There's certain things about the 60s that are glorified. And I have a friend, Andy Pally, who, you know, was in bands and stuff around that time. And he's like, people have the 60s all wrong. It wasn't this love peace and like no it wasn't it, it seems like we always try to glorify all sorts of things i mean there was an awful lot of awakening there's a lot awful lot of good things that were starting to occur but a lot of people turned junkies out of it too you know uh there was a lot of pain and uh 
in a way, uh, Manson was a pretty good example of what can go wrong. And, uh, but we did some pretty damn good things too. You know, we, the women's movement started around that time. Vietnam Vets Against the War started, but that wasn't out of a good thing. That, you know, and uh, now guys that are old Vietnam Vets Against the War are helping the guys coming, you know, the men and women coming back from uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. And they have their own, you know, and so that's been really cool. Uh, but yeah, anytime anything's glorified, uh, take it with uh, a great deal of distrust, <laughs> no matter what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I just but we did some pretty good things. It awakened a lot. But now they celebrate the facade of it. You know, the drugs, the clothes, not the politics, not the politics. You know, so, and even then. Half the people I knew that had the politics don't have them anymore. And it's probably no, no uh, uh, coincidence that the yippies became the yuppies. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, Jerry Rubin owned stock the whole time he was Chicago 7. Yes, I know. Really? Well, I didn't. Uh, yeah. It was after the Chicago 7. But yeah, but he still helped John. Like I tried to get, I tried to get John Sinclair to say something bad about Jerry Rubin, and he wouldn't because he's like, well, that guy helped me out to get out of prison and stuff. There's there's still that he's, he's still on the right side he's donating that money to Democrat the Democratic Party he was he, he made money but he threw big Democratic fundraisers with it so he felt his 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 way was to fight within the system yeah he was uh, he was a sort of a uh, he was really split down the middle kind of guy I yeah. you know he had a bodyguard in Chicago a big Big thuggish looking. Well, he wasn't an ex-cop. He was an undercover cop. That's when you were there for the Democrats. Yeah, I got hit by him because I got so I got so damn mad at uh, Reuben for something he said. Uh, and as I was to move in on him, his this great big guy with a with a belt with a great big black, and he had you know kind of balding. You know, he was kind of shaved and you know, three or four days, and he just knocked the crap out of me. And he turned out to be an undercover cop. So I thought, ha, 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 because he's the one who testified against Reuben. He was his hired bodyguard. And while I was pissed off, they even had a bodyguard, for God's sakes. So you were going after Reuben? Yeah, so he said something. Was it? Fighter to get in his face? Or I was going to get in his face. I, I might have tried to hit him. I don't know. I, I was just mad. I don't usually try to hit anybody, but I was mad at him for, I can't even remember. I remember we had uh, on Tuesday gotten knocked around by the, uh, by the guard and. I, I walked out of the McCarthy thing because McCarthy himself kind of backed out. And uh, so it was one of the parks. It was Grant Park, I think. And he did something or said something to piss me off so much. I was just going straight into him. And that's when the, the big guy, boy, he put me down on the deck pretty good, too. And uh, then a bunch of people just grabbed me and said, don't, 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 you know. So. Was, it that, is it, was this at, at the same time with the, your Phil Oaks moment? Well, it was about two days late, uh, two days after that. Why didn't you tell you about that? Didn't what I? was your Phil, Phil Oaks moment? Well, let's see. The, I think it was the night I got to Vietnam, or got to Vietnam. I got to Chicago, maybe the second night. I had uh, had been hanging around with a young Vietnamese woman uh, who the problems between us were uh, I was a peasant and she was an aristocrat. And her father uh, was called the McCarthy of Vietnam because he had run against two and key in 67, so he was locked up in Kansan Island. But also he was, a, he was the rotary boss of Southeast Asia too. <laughs> and he was an attorney, his name was, uh, uh, darn it, it'll come to me. Her name was Monique Trung, his name was Trung Din Zhu. And she was, uh, she was uh, 
Trung Kim An, but her name was Monique, you know, half, she had French blood in her. And when I met her, it was at UCLA. And she'd already been through uh, schools in France. And, and, but I met her in a laundromat, for God's sakes. And we had, it was after, it was, oh, it was after the Oregon primary. We won here for McCarthy. And so I wound up in LA helping organize Vietnam Vets for McCarthy uh, in the su during the summer in Westwood. And so I met her in a laundromat. And I knew her father, and when she said her name, I said, you're, you're, you know, and her father just got locked up. So we started running around together. And uh, I was sort of, you know, getting her before the press. As a matter of fact, um, oh, darn it. Uh, the fellow, after Martin Luther King got killed that year, his best pal took over uh, the People's, People's March. I can't think of his name at the moment. But his daughter was working for McCarthy. And it was her that I was petitioning to get McCarthy to speak of uh, Trung Dinh Zhu, who was called the McCarthy of Vietnam. And he finally did. And oh, what was her name? And his name. Uh, she was such a nice lady. And so it was, you know, what's his name was uh, King's pal. He, he led the People's March in Chicago. It wound up being in Chicago uh, during the convention. But I met, yeah, I met Oaks. Uh, so anyway, she's sitting with a bunch of guys in this one place with her brother, who was later locked up as the Vietnam spy. It was after the war was over with, and whether he was or was not writing letters back to Vietnam, he got locked up and did several years in jail as the Vietnam spy. His name was uh, David uh, Trung. And uh, that, was just, that was just a travesty, truly, what they did to him, what they did to David. Uh, I'm, I'm not aware of what they, what they did they, to him. They, uh, he supposedly was involved with a couple of people that were selling things to the so-called North Vietnamese, but there was no North Vietnam anymore. It was Vietnam. This was after it became unified. And I think they were looking for somebody to hang for it. And so they hung David. And I think he spent about eight years in jail, federal prison. I lost touch with him. He's probably back in Vietnam. I think Monique, you know, she married a lawyer, an all-American buzz, buzz-headed guy, you know. And so our, our romance didn't really last all that long. It was pretty spectacular when it happened, for as far as I was concerned. And, and so I'm sitting in Chicago, and, and, and David's there, and he had hired Phil Oaks to sing at their little table while she's talking to these IFS guys or something like that. They're very, very intelligent guys, or four of them, uh, international, something like that. They're all very, very wealthy, speak Vietnamese, and she really looked at me, how come you don't speak Vietnamese? And I said, because I was, I was too busy shooting you guys. You know, I was really pissed off she said that. I said, <laughs> I said, I know how to say get here or get the hell out of here and, and how to good morning and goodbye, but that's it. I didn't have much chance to have any contact without, you know, being shot at, you know. And, uh, but she was very, and she made a real great speech uh, on Tuesday night, something like that, and that was after MacArthur, McCarthy had kind of withdrawn. And there was a, it was a torchlight march and a speech, one of the parks, and I just kind of stayed in the shadows saying, well, that's over with. But that night, Oaks thought, saw what was happening, and he just started singing songs for me. Wow. You know, in my behalf, trying to defend me. 
And I just thought that was a wonderful thing to do. I'd never met him before. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, he was a friend for life from that moment. And the next day, we went to the convention center, and that's when Abby Hoffman, you know, let loose all those pigs, the greasy pigs, the greased pigs, which used to be old, old-style politics, but nobody even understood that then, you know. And it was the funniest damn thing in the world. And that's how I met Abby Hoffman, actually, was through Oaks. And then 72, we had these things in Portland, uh, uh, demonstrations against the Rose Festival, which I used to characterize as, you know, the wealthy, uh, the wealthy, uh, merchants and and their gunboats when the Navy would come, you know. So we had a we had a we had a counter rose festival, and and for about three years, and we had different guests coming in, and Phil Oaks the second time I think it was seventy two maybe seventy three, was my guest. I asked him to come and he came, and then my friend Shay she and I tried to get him to stay. He said you just stay here. We'll we'll send for your baggage and you just stay here because he loved Oregon. Actually, he went up to. Um, the Dalles to help me uh, start a, a chapter of the Vietnam Vets Against the War. It was in the makes. I was the, region, the state coordinator, so they asked me to come, and Oaks went and sang songs. And I realized none of those people really realized who he really was, you know. But, you know, he went home and hung himself in his sister's house around 76 or 77. I wish we had not let him go. I, uh, but as far as I'm concerned, he, he, he will be my, a friend for life. And I hope I was for him. We got, it was just one of those things. And he just, without even being, at, you know, he just sensed it. And he was an incredibly sensitive person. And usually morose, <laughs> depressed. And what a great songwriter. Uh, uh, Bob Dylan said he was the best of the best. Yeah. You know? uh, very unpretentious guy. Just, just a decent, decent guy. And I miss him still. That's been a long, long time now. But, uh, you know, he just, he just stepped in for me. You know, that's something you don't have happen to you all the time. It's, in <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm sorry, I was moved by that story. So, so am I. Uh, <laughs> so am I. <laughs> no, you didn't take me off. There is no track. Yeah. <laughs> There was something you said, though, within that, and I, I was curious to see what you think of um, Bradley Manning, and I'm forgetting. What's her name? Uh, uh, no, well, Chelsea Manning. Chelsea, yeah, Chelsea. And Manning, the, the other guy, the NSA guy, whose name uh, I just... Snowden. Snowden, Snowden yes. Yeah. Like Lord Snowden, the British uh, minister? <laughs> I, wonder I, just, uh, I wonder if he's... Uh, I, I have... Anthony uh, Eden was his name, uh, but he, became, he was Lord Snowden, you know? Uh, Churchill's uh, Churchill's a Churchill's uh, second in, in command. Yeah, Interesting. yeah. I didn't think about that for a while. I said, Snowden, Snow, oh, yeah, Lord Snowden. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I have some friends who are uh, get upset about those two individuals because they feel like, oh, they compromised our security. Sure. Uh, what was it? Uh, it probably could be what Franklin said that those who. Uh, give up their freedom for security don't deserve either. So you can say that to your friends. <laughs> uh, and I question their friendship, quite honestly. <laughs> Sometimes you're just stuck with some people. Well, yeah, stuck with family, friends. <laughs> to, to, to back up, what uh, made you want to become a journalist? 
Well, the lie I usually tell is uh, <laughs> I was watching a Spencer Tracy movie once when I was a kid on television. And he was uh, sitting as typewriter, reached into his bottom drawer, pulled out a bottle of whiskey, drank it, put it back in, and started writing. I said, that's the job I want. <laughs> So yeah, so there were no journalistic heroes other than Spencer Tracy? Possibly not. I I don't know. I just oh I was writing articles for this junior college I was going through. Well, they call them two year colleges now. My brother taught there for damn near fifty years afterwards, but uh and I was I wound up writing editorials for some reason or another. And people got so upset and so excited, they even uh were gonna burn me an effigy on one article. But the, uh, oh, yeah, the, the dean of men showed up, so no, so I lit the son of a bitch and got thrown out of school for two weeks. And the guy's name was Waters. I always thought that was funny. But I got really excited. I said, my God, I, I write a few words and all these people get excited about it? And so I wound up working at a newspaper in Pasadena, the Independent Star News. I don't know if you ever heard of that. Started off as a copy boy at the age of 22. Uh, and this is after a few years being, well, I was, I was in the Forest Service as a hotshot crew, and I was also a Reserve Marine. So I, and uh, I think by the time I started, yeah, I was parachutist by then too. So I finally got into it a little bit after, you know, the average person. And I didn't have any, well, except for that one year of taking journalism, which I never went to class. Uh, I just thought, man, this is what I like to do. And, uh, and I can keep a bottle of uh, brandy or whiskey on my bottom drawer. Yeah. <laughs> I started the day Kennedy got killed uh, in 63. I was actually was going to show up to be trained to how to run these little tapes, uh, IBM tapes, as a copy boy the following Monday. But everything went off. President shot in Dallas, so I wound up. And those are the three most exciting days I had ever had in journalism, I think. Even the war kind of paled before that, because everybody showed up into the, into the newspaper office wondering what the hell's going on, crying, laughing, angry, whatever. And I was the important guy. I was the copy boy. I was ripping the copy off the machine, letting them see it before I took it over to the copy editor, slept on the couch. Everything else was anticlimactic after that one, to tell you the truth. And the day I sh would have really started, uh, the 25th, which is when I really officially did start, was the day they buried them all. They buried Kennedy, Oswald, and, uh, and the cop that Oswald killed, uh, Tippett, on the 25th. And I, I, I get a big laugh out of it that the Marine Corps will throw John Wayne and all kinds of famous Marines at you, but the one Marine nobody will ever forget is Lee Harvey Oswald. <laughs> <laughs> There is justice in the planet sometimes. <laughs> um, and what was, the, were the radical papers that you started, were they very controversial at post? Well, I only post started one rag. Well, even then, I picked it up after it, uh, after it uh, died three years earlier. That was the Times Eagle. But, you know, I started, I started work, I think the first paper was the uh, Village Voice. I was writing for it when we first started Vietnam Vets Against the War in New York. And then also for the Vietnam GI. And then stuff of mine went into the LA Free Press. Uh, uh, a lot of my stuff went... Uh, yeah, before it became a smut rag. 
Uh, we had a couple of good rags here, the Portland Scribe, the Willamette, uh, Willamette Bridge. Uh, but stuff of mine was picked up a lot, you know, in the underground. And that's what I did with the North Coast Times Eagle, was that anybody, you know, we can take, uh, take from anybody anything as long as we credit the source and don't change it. You know, that was the deal. And I was waiting to get hauled into court by people that get pissed off, saying, hey, that's the deal, you know. I'm not stealing from them. I'm actually, you know, running their stuff and attributing it to them. And that's the way it is. That's the way, but I never got dragged into court. So I did have people call up and say, blah, 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 blah. And I'd say, well, this is it. You know, you never would have been read in this newspaper, something like that. Even one woman who was really mad when I used one of her poems. And then I sent her five bucks, a very humble apology, and a couple of copies of the rag. Uh, 25 bucks. She said that's what that poem would have cost. She sent me the 25 buck, uh, back and, and gave me a whole new ream of poems and wrote po poems for me for the rest of the time. Because <laughs> Shane told me that you said the only, forgive me if I might be screwing up your quote, but that the only wor paper worth publishing is the one that you do at a kitchen table? Yeah, <laughs> I guess I we said something. On that. Yeah. Oh. We, we, we sort of agreed on, yes. Why he doesn't do it again and he want to buy an office and get phones and that's not what it's about. It's about Playboy was started on a fucking kitchen. You can swear on my show. Yeah. <laughs> With the calendar photograph of Marilyn Monroe that he didn't get permission for. Right, right. right. So, yeah. I mean, the best ones have been started up tables, and they're, they're just so, that's where the feeling is. It's, it's, that was, for me, a cottage industry, for sure. It's yeah. almost like, you know, it's an art type thing. You know, I, one of the things I didn't like about journalism a lot when I was working for newspapers was it, it was a job, and it was, to me... It just becomes your heart and soul, and turning out your own rag is that. Uh, all its flaws and all its best things is what you do and what you put into it. And, uh, and you know, I just, when I quit the rag and then uh, some people wanted me to start it again, they had it all planned out as to where we're going to have an office, we're going to do this and do that, and, uh, and it was all going to be digital, and, and I had a meltdown. When it looked like I was going to really, and I thought, I'm not going to do this, not this way, and uh, it's just not, you know. A leader works so breaking. They were telling us real quick the story of paper there. I love, I love running uh, McCusker's stuff, but he won't. He, he just, it's, he will not do it digital, nothing. So we can't really run it anymore. He just won't budge on this. It's, that's it. It's paste up. It's this way or no way. That's it. Well, they just well, they still print the letters. Well, they, they, I turn them in, you know, by paper. I have to walk in because I don't have a phone and I don't have an, uh, you know, so I have to walk them in and say, yes, it is me, you know, because you have to, they want to verify that the person writing the letter is the person they claim to be. So I just usually walk them in and Alita or, uh, or, or the other two and say, here, this is me, this is it. So they usually, I think they've printed every letter I've sent them yet uh, so far. Uh, I'm not sure. Steve Forrester and I were in Vietnam, same time, same places. And it was kind of funny. We both ended up publishing, you know, newspapers in the same town. And uh, we both have very, very different views about things, even though he's, you know, he's a bona fide liberal. And he does some very good stuff. But I guess he's not on, he doesn't, he likes being a big shot. <laughs> do, you con do you consider yourself a liberal? Because I heard there was a, a conversation. Know, you know, people ask, when did you become a left winger? I said, right out of the oven. I'm left-handed. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
I, I claim I have two nightmares. One is Viet Cong with AKs, and the worst one is nuns with rulers. Breaking them over my goddamn left knuckles, you know, so I wouldn't write with my left hand. Because now <laughs> it seems like today a lot of people are weary of both parties. I would be leery of them, too. I think we need 23 parties instead of just those two. They don't, I don't think, well, with especially 300 million people, how can two parties represent you, all of you? The, I, I wrote something years ago, the Republicans are usually the, the fascist-minded, they're really to the right, and the Democrats are all the ones that the Republicans don't want. You know, <laughs> the people of color, women, every other kind of assorted party has to just uncomfortably fit itself into the Democratic Party because nobody else will have them and nobody treats third parties worth, uh, you know, with, with seriousness enough. You know, so the Democrats are stuck with everybody else. <laughs> Oh, I love that song. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a great one. And I love his intro to that, his live intro to that. Uh, 10 degrees to the left of center in the best of times, 10 degrees to the right of center if it evolves impersonally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and that made me. That's Robin Hood. Hello, Robin Hood. Hi. How are you? This guy's really entertaining on the radio. I listen to him all the time. Life. It's verbal dysentery. Verbal dysentery. <laughs> but especially when I'm driving, because then I can can't inter interrupt you, you know. <laughs> Which you would like to, yeah. Well, you know, I, I talk just like he does. I'm just, I was, uh, I did a lot of substitute teaching, so I had to learn on my feet. I remember you did, yes. But then, uh, but as far as uh, Vietnam, I agree. I agree with him. A while before I could even. I had two years of ROTC, and I lied my way out. You know, I, I got 99 in the draft when I was in college. And I grabbed the stock, found the stock for the letter saying I was hooked on methadone, Demerol, chronic, <laughs> manic depressive. But there, then I probably jacked my blood pressure up, and so that's probably eventually where I got out. But you know, I saw my best friend. We used to have these uh, conus conus uh, uh, boxes. It could fit four, uh, you know, corpses. They'd, they'd bring in all the junk from the state side, and then uh, take the boxes back with four corpses in them. You could freeze, you know, they, you could freeze them in there. And I remember sometimes in Chulai, when we still had Chulai before the army took it over, you see, you know, you're out on the field, and you know, you're stuck in your own little thing, but you don't know how bad or big it is, you know. But when you come back into Chulai and the airstrip, there's all these, maybe a hundred conus boxes on either side of the road, you know, oh my God, it was that bad? You know? And then of course, they go by available flight. So they would just kind of disappear as they can fit them into the planes or something like that, and take them into Da Nang, and then from Da Nang to Japan, and then Japan to the States, you know? I had relatives who, that was their job. Yeah. Yeah, collects the boxes. So what I want to ask you is... CONUS means continental U.S. That's what the box means. What I've heard from a lot of my friends, in those boxes there was a lot of heroin and drugs. Oh, I'm sure. Guys yeah, would go I, home I with sea bags full of marijuana, you know. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure there was a lot of stuff in those boxes. 
So they wanted to get to the, they wanted to get to him first. <laughs> yeah, that's what the officers did. So I ask you a question: Would you ever? Well, obviously not now, but would would you ever consider? I guess the military is an option anymore. No. No. Uh, you know I. Uh, It's the military. It's like police in many respects. There are times when they're necessary, but usually they become more than just necessary. They become the oppressive, the oppressive force themselves. And uh, especially the military, when you set up a status between you know enlisted and officers. Um, uh, maybe I. What did I do with it? I think I, this fellow that, uh, Bergdahl, who was uh, pulled out of, uh, you know, traded for five so-called militants uh, after five years in the slammer, uh, you know, being captured, captured. Is this the one? I, I wrote a letter that I have not yet sent to the Daily Ass because I want to see uh, what's going to go on. I read it on the air. People got upset because I called Bush a deserter. Or at least one person did. Yes, he was. He was. That's he a was. fact. He was. You know, that's you a know, fact. I couldn't find him. Yeah, he was gone for a year. And yeah. he, even in peacetime, and this was during war, he was gone for a year. He's more than a, a deserter. He's a... Yeah, he's just, you know, he's just a, a guy that, hey, man, I got all the rights and privileges, and screw you. Uh-oh, oh, oh. What did I do with it? I had to, pardon me for doing this, but I must have left it at the radio station. Can I ask you one more question, Mark? Sure. What, what, how did you get radicalized? Experience. The war did it to me. And going out, you know, when I came back, I, oh, there it is. No, that's not it, so it must be this one. I thought that all I had to do is for those of us who've been through it to speak up and people would listen and listen to us, not the people that are you know, uh, sticking them in it. Well, that was a mis I, that was a mistaken assumption. Uh, people would call us traitors and cowards and, and try to even attack us. And uh, ah, here it is. Uh, so I realized, and I got radicalized because I just I, I realized that people refused to listen, and they're being swayed by the people who are you know causing the problems. And uh, you guys were in the problem. Yeah, and you know we uh, we held we held testimonies against the war. Here's uh, Kerry called a coward for you know he was actually picking up on what we did, and uh, it's till to this day people call him a coward and a traitor and didn't deserve any of this stuff. And most of the people I hear that never had a day in in, in you know uh, in in sort of the same thing. Can I read this thing? Yes. Okay, please, it, it's a short one. I haven't. Thank you. Uh, sorry, Rob, I'm going to read. Is, no, this no, is about no. the. I'm listening to you. This is your show, Mike. Okay, so this is not yet submitted because I'm, I'm going to wait to. But uh, U.S. Army Sergeant Bowie Bergdahl is safely stateside after five years' captivity by Taliban insurgents in Afghanistan. Yet he is under medical and federal surveillance. 
He's been investigated for desertion, which some think might have led to his capture. A loud squawk from the chicken hawk imperialist fringe of our democracy has led to bitter questioning of the swap of five Guantanamo prisoners for his release. A few Bulgarians shout that he should have been left to die in captivity. If Bergdahl is under threat of court-martial, how about George W. Bush, who deserted his Texas Air National Guard unit during the Vietnam War? Or don't we hold accountable rich playboys who joined the Guard during that period to avoid serving in the war, who even with that safe and cushy berth went AWOL for a year? Even in peacetime, anyone AWOL for a month is officially considered a deserter. Has Bush, a neo-Nero, whose chicken hawk ineptitude was primarily responsible for disregarding warnings prior to 9-11, talk about Benghazi, and for the failed wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, ever satisfactorily explained why he deserted his unit in wartime. Bush, of all people, should be among the first to speak up for Bergdahl and at the very least demand fair and just treatment for him. But of course he won't. The real code of military justice is as inflexible in this case as always. Protect the officers as a class and as individuals, especially if one becomes president of the USA, and hang the enlisted swine out to dry. That might also be said of civilian law in this tottering democracy. Wealth and status, a hypocritical shield against blind justice. And I don't want to take too much more of your time up. Uh, there are two, maybe three other things. One was, that I guess we kind of covered this at the top, but I'm interested in what you would say to somebody who's pro-war and says, like, uh, you know, it's good that we go into these other countries. It's we're, They're exercises to show our might and... Yeah, well, you know, they're faulting, uh, a lot of people are faulting Obama for, uh, you know, being circumspect, and uh, McCain, I guess, is really trashing him. But, you know, I disagree with him. Uh, that what gives us the right to go into other people and be uh, neo-colonious, you know, I thought that stuff was over with and should have been over with a long, long time ago. But, you know, it's going to get worse with the, as the resources are shrinking, and we're using up most of them anyway. We're going to be in there, and we'll have. I, I just, I think the Iraq and Afghanistan wars are just the beginning of many, and they're going to be resource wars. Uh, and people are going to be fighting. Uh, uh, people who might have been your allies the last time, well, they want them too, you know. And I, I don't look to a, a very comfortable future. I, I think it's going to be a lot of people. Uh, just going after, there's going to be trying to take over powers to get these resources. There are going to be people fighting back against that. And it's not just going to be allies anymore. It's probably going to be everybody uh, fighting each other. I, I hope I'm wrong, but I'm just a worst case scenario. And that we're just, we're just looting the earth. And the earth is not going to be able to support us for very much longer with what we've got, what, what we want. we got more of us wanting more than ever. Why are you we know? in a constant state of war? Like, I mean, it seems like... Well, you know... That has been tried to have been explained for at least the last several thousand years. Uh, is that a, is this humanity? Uh, I, you know, we probably, like I think I said earlier, got uh, uh, serenity, or I'm not saying it right, power over the planet because we were very well, uh, very intelligent uh, 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 predators. And we knew how to, you know, put together uh, groups of us to not only be predators against every other form of life on the planet, but also among ourselves. 
nobody killed, you know, anything that's called inhuman has only been done by humans. And uh, so I, to answer that question, I don't know. Because I grew up, uh, I was a little baby during World War II. I, I didn't know that uh, babies were dying all over the world by the hundreds of thousands. I was just a fat, happy little baby in America, you know. And, um, uh, and during the Cold War, I swallowed it, you know. I did the duck and cover as a little boy. Uh, I joined the California, what do they call it, that damn thing they had in schools. Uh, you know, you, you, you can avoid going to gym if you join the California blah, blah, blah. And they had all kinds of World War II stuff, which was pretty groovy to me, you know. And, and then I joined the Marine Corps. You know, I was, uh, you could talk to my sister. She said, boy, you were as war a hawk as I've ever met one. And I was hung up on Vikings, you know. So I joined the Marine Corps, little amphibious monsters, landed on beaches, you know. It took the experience of it to change my mind. Uh, you know, I was telling a friend of mine uh, when, you know, she's a, uh, uh, if I had gone in 1964, if I had gone to Mississippi, I probably, I most likely would not have gone to Vietnam. And most of the people I knew, men and women, uh, that were in the anti-war movement, mostly white, got their start in the civil rights movement around Freedom Summer, you know. And if I had gone to that, I most likely would not have, been, you know, gone to Vietnam. If I'd been, you know, I, my smarts come by getting hit on the head quite a few times. And oh, now I understand. <laughs> now I understand. Uh, and this is a total departure from anything we've been talking about. But Shane told me you, uh, he didn't tell me the story, but about your boat sinking. Oh. <laughs> I said, look, Oscar survived this fucking secret boat. Yeah, that's how I told him. I said you had a great story about it. I even wrote a novella about it, but. It's a, yeah, we just were coming in. I was a, I, I was a tuna fisherman. In a way, it's a, it's, it's a, a irony or a paradox, however you want to feel about it, but I found the way I could get over uh, helping slaughter human beings was slaughter fish and going out on the pond. And I just couldn't take American life very well, but being out on the pond, on the ocean, you're with a small crew. It's like being with your platoon or your squad in a way, and you're facing, you know, uh, more or less life and death issues every bloody day out on that pond. And, uh, and in a way, it's not that I really wanted it, but it was real. It wasn't artificial, you know? And so I spent about five seasons doing it, about five and a half, actually, something like that, before I started working on the Times Eagle, getting the Times Eagle out of Wheeler and then doing it again when it folded, starting it up again. But we, we were coming in. I was in 72, uh, uh, August 29th. Tuesday morning around 10 o'clock, we were p picking up pots. It was an extended crab season was coming to an end. So we were picking up pots. We picked up about 50 of them, and we are running back into the bar. And uh, we probably should have stayed outside. I think it was during an ebb, but we came in because we were impatient to get in, and we flipped over. We lost a bunch of pots first, and so we pulled them back in again, got them tied down even better on deck. These crab pots are big damn things. They're like big rounded cheese things. You know, you've seen those cheeses around with the little wire things around them. Well, these are big ones, you know, and they're knocking you all over the place. And uh, so we flipped over, and uh, Pugrin de Gilnetter uh, picked us up after a tuna boat stopped and yelled that, you know, this boat went down. And, of course, the skipper was pissed off the tuna boat, but it was a big boat. 
and you know we're we uh, only a small boat could get in because we're down on the starboard side so our mast is sticking out lined i mean only a small boat could have got in through all that stuff without holding itself you know so I took off the first guy bjork took off the skipper and uh, well i kind of kicked him in and the guy that had been with us and then the last one came in and i jumped aboard and i could just the last i saw of us was our, our the pots that were on deck now formed a ring around it and there were little planks that came up after you could just see the bubbles as it hit the you know and i could hear it i swear i heard it hit the bottom of the river you know and uh that, that was the story of that we all got off alive which i i say makes us panty waste because most of the boats that go down lose half their crews their whole crews and we even we were even listed in a in a thing and i said well we don't belong on that list we all got off alive you know <laughs> No, I got to, I got on, I jumped aboard this little puker boat, uh, you know, and uh, and so then they transferred us to a, a 44 out of Cape D, you know, and uh, and then we went to the uh, Coast Guard station. But no, I wouldn't. I, I, I well, what I was, and this is where I think. Well, no, because I was the last one on, and so the port side is now our deck, and it's just going down and down and down and down. And I'm wondering, I'm moving up and moving up and moving up right to the prow, wondering if that thing was going to go down with me in it and whether I'd get sucked under or that puker coming in with my friend Bjork yelling, hang on, Mac, hang on, Mac. You know, what am I going to do, you know? And uh, I managed to jump just before the prow went down. So, but I don't know. I never would have, you know, I, I don't know if I had it right or not, but I might have been sucked under with the prow. Dave Densmore says, "Never let go of the boat." Never let go of the Never boat. Never let go of the boat, no matter if it's sinking. You hold on to that boat. Hang on, yeah. That's it. That's all you have out there. You hold on to this boat. So I'm just on the prow like this, hanging on like this, and going, hmm, you know, just like a bug. And uh, I remember this guy wondered what happened to us. And I said, "Well, you know, all those crabs that were running loose on the deck because we forgot to take our box down. They all just daisy chained together on their claws and dragged us over." <laughs> Uh, thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you. And uh, where can uh, my listeners find your work? My what? Your work. Oh, I don't Coast, know. On coastradio.org, for sure. Yeah, and uh, That's my right. newspaper is archived by the University of Oregon. So after this interview wound up, Mr. McCusker invited Shane Bugbeak and Kelly and I to uh, for a glass of wine up the street, and we went to a place called the Tiki Bar, uh, which, by the way, has a, a really great bowl of clam chowder. Get the New England way better than the, or get the Manhattan. Um, but uh, Mr. McCusker loosened up and he started telling us more stories about war protests that he uh, participated in in the 60s. And uh, I turned on my iPhone and recorded this. So if the sound varies from what it is in the rest of the episode, forgive me, but uh, it's a really great story. And you could hear more of this conversation uh, on thematdwire.com. Oh, that's the one. What was it? It was medals at Congress and 100 pounds of chicken shit at the Pentagon. Fuck. And, uh, yeah, I, I consider it the last uh, major attack prior to 9-11 on the Pentagon. And, uh, yeah, we, we called ourselves the chicken shit 20. Uh, we were in jail for about three hours and they let us loose, but said if you don't get out of town, you're in jail for 90 days. <laughs> chicken shit 20. That's yeah. fucking So awesome. wh where did this come from, this idea, to throw chicken shit at the Pentagon? Actually... Uh, it came from most of us talking to each other because a lot of guys wanted to blow up things. We said, no, let's not do that. And this is after the, um, 
This is after the, no, this is, uh, oh, after we did our things about throwing the medals. Then they had this great big uh, march on, on a Saturday. 500,000 people from all over the country showed up to march in Washington, D.C. Unions, Christian, the works, man. i never seen so many people in my whole life. And that's the same amount of people that were Americans, you know, 500,000, you know, that West Mormon wanted. And then the May Day thing started the following Monday. And they ran us all out of uh, Algonquin Park where the uh, Bonus Army guys had, uh, you know, they ran down and shot a few of them back in the 30s. The Bonus Army guys, World War I. Uh, and so what they did is they got us all out of there and they made the biggest mistake in the world. They had us concentrated in there, but they spread us all over the goddamn city so they couldn't get us anymore, you know? <laughs> and so anyway, the day it started, and so a bunch of us vets were going to do something as vets. And so guys wanted to do all kinds of stuff, and somebody came up with the idea, why not chicken shit? You know, everybody, know, you know. And that was it. That was it. That's what we did. And we got, there's a bunch of chicken farms outside, you know, outside D.C. and Maryland. So we went up that night and grabbed all this fresh chicken shit from these different farms. And then we put it in little bags, and then we offloaded it on a truck. And most of the cops in D.C. were black. And so they got to, oh, they had a field day beating up all these white people. You know, they surely did, you know. <laughs> they really did, yeah. Uh, it was sort of revenge in a way, you know. Uh, but anyway, we unloaded. We got the hell out of there. We just were like back in Vietnam again. We, we ducked everybody trying to get us. And we crossed the, we crossed the, the bridge over into... Uh, into, into, into Virginia, and there was the Pentagon, and we went straight down into it. Even a bunch of people trying to get this army guy trying to crawl this, crawl up this wire, you know, fence to get us, but we bang, we got across. And so we were in the Pentagon. We had these little bags, you know, of, of, of stuff, you know, like little grenades with their chicken shit. And so we walk around three sides of the Pentagon trying to figure out what we're going to do. And I remember these two, uh, again, two black cops, security guards, uh, tried to stop us, and they had these white spankling uniforms. One guy grabbed one of the bags and was all over his uniform. He just started puking. <laughs> and this one woman uh, in one of the windows just gave us a this, you know, wow, you know. And all of a sudden, we hit the front porch of the Pentagon. And there was all these people, and they saw us. They all ran for the door as fast as they possibly could. I remember this one major started uh, in uniform with all the stuff on and all the salad, you know. You people! And then he saw what we had. He just ran right through a bunch of women to get into that door. You know, just he just knocked them out like bowling pins to get through that door. And so the door was slammed shut and locked, and all these people are staring out the windows of what we're doing. And we just were like a bunch of Vikings. We just went up and started throwing these little bags of chicken shit on the Pentagon. You know, then we exhausted. We got back out, and that's when everybody that tried to get us got us. <laughs> DC cops, National Guard, Army—you know the works—they got us. So, as a friend of mine said, when we were busted, and uh, one of the guys asked, uh, "What are you busting us for?" And one of the friends said, "What did he say? Uh, chicken defecation distribution." <laughs> <laughs> So we got we got thrown up the uh, got thrown in the bus and we were taken to uh, the feds in Arlington and this one magistrate that looked like a Grant Wood painting you know that Grant Wood uh, had these you know the D A R with their glasses and all that this guy looked just like him he sentenced us to if we didn't get out of town in three hours we would be uh, uh, busted for 90 days in the meantime all these people on that May Day thing that were with Dr Spock 
got busted at the they tried to get into the Pentagon and they got busted and Spock got released. You know, he was an old man by then, but he really, I mean, he I got to say that man went with his generation. You know, they always blame him for the promiscuous generation, the books he wrote in the 40s and stuff like that. But when it came against the war, he was with us all the time. I mean, he was out in the streets. And I give a really a, a great credit to that guy. And, uh, and I met him in L.A., actually, when we were, had the Vets Against the War stuff. He was living in L.A. then. But uh, so I'm almost losing my train there. So we got busted. And all these great big marshals, great big guys, U.S. marshals in these blue suits. And I remember this skinny little guy with me, pimple face and all that. He had a silver star. Sorry, you know? And uh, he looked at these, he just looked up and he says, so how come you guys, how come you're not, you know? And the guy, blah, 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 blah. And he said, you mean I, you are, I am what you're pretending to be? That's what he said. I am what you're pretending to be. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Uh, please follow me on Twitter, Matt underscore Dwyer at Twitter.com. Support all the shows at feralaudio.com. If you could donate money, that would be awesome. Use the Amazon link and visit the mattdwyer.com. I love you. Power to the people. National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.